the early definitions of personalized medicine in the early literature, this concept was described as bringing the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And, you know, as I've gone through my career in personalized medicine, the more I've reflected on this, the more I've concluded that that goal has to be broader than simply targeting something based upon, um, you know, biomarker strategies. Because if you're trying to intervene at the right time and understand which populations of patients are, are most at risk, I think um, the COVID-19 experience is one perfect example of how you have to be um, understanding the patient in a very holistic way. Welcome to the Personalized Medicine Podcast. This is the place where scientists, clinicians, and entrepreneurs discuss the progress of this rapidly developing field. I am your host, Alexander Yahensky. Let's start. Three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome to the next episode of the Personalized Medicine Podcast. On this show, we typically talk about science and technology driving the progress in personalized medicine. But the policy side of things and patient access are equally important. I'm very happy to welcome on our podcast Christopher Wells, the Vice President of Public Affairs at the Personalized Medicine Coalition. A few months ago, I stumbled upon Chris' article in STAT, in which he eloquently described why we cannot narrow down personalized medicine just to cancer. I need to look at it through a larger lens. And this is what we will be doing today on this episode. So, Chris, thank you so much for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Great. Chris, I would like to start with your story. So can you tell our audience a little bit more about yourself, about your career, and what got you interested in personalized medicine and how that interest led you to the place you are at today? Sure. So we fast, or we, I guess suppose we rewind uh, rather uh, back to my time at Binghamton University, which is where I did my, my master's degree. Um, at the time, I was working uh, on scholarship program there um, on a degree in public administration, doing research on um, social media and communications and the ways in which nonprofit organizations use them. Um, I'd say that that's the first place where I encountered the words personalized medicine, although I still had only a vague conception of what this might be. Uh, and then after I finished my uh, master's degree, I moved to Washington, D.C., um, and I was working for a, a temp agency while I found footing here and was introduced to the Personalized Medicine Coalition in that manner. Um, and I came in here at the ground floor seven years ago um, as a temp employee, an office coordinator. And um, I would say that probably the, from the moment that I read about what this field could offer for patients, um, it struck me that it was amazing to me that we were not utilizing some of these things the way that we could be already. Um, and so my career has, um, you know, uh, moved forward from there. Uh, and like you said, now I'm the vice president for public affairs at the Personalized Medicine Coalition, where I've sort of come full circle and taken my communications background, my undergraduate degrees in journalism, and I've been applying it to communicate about what this is uh, and why it's so important to multiple audiences, uh, not least of which are 
uh, patients themselves, uh, as well as congressional lawmakers. So uh, it's been a, a, a good journey and, and I'm, I'm really uh, enjoying it. Fantastic. Great. Chris, can you tell us a little bit more about Personalized Medicine Coalition? So what actually it is and what do you guys do? Uh, sure. So the Personalized Medicine Coalition is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Um, we are focused on education, advocacy, and evidence development. So we have a, a sort of a three-pillar focus here. Um, our mission uh, is to advance uh, the field of personalized medicine. So the educational aspect of our mission focuses on raising its profile, uh, again, among multiple audiences. This is where I spend the bulk of my time. Uh, and much of this is designed to, um, A, help prompt patients to ask questions about personalized medicine, which helps um, uh, promote its integration in clinical settings. Um, but also to help uh, shape public opinion uh, favorably so that we might have a base of understanding uh, that we need when we advance public policies that maybe uh, will help advance the field. So it's a very important function there. And then the second pillar here is advocacy. And, and this is um, where we're doing our work on Capitol Hill uh, and uh, focusing on policy issues, many of which are in the areas of regulation and reimbursement. Um, but not exclusively so. Uh, and those are designed to help pave the way uh, to personalized medicine by creating a friendlier policy uh, environment for it. And then finally, um, we focus thirdly on evidence development. And um, here, the key, uh, we see this as a, a key driver to the future of personalized medicine along actually all three of these fronts. Uh, and the idea here is to generate evidence to support the clinical and economic uh, utility of personalized medicine and to evaluate its value proposition across different disease states. So the three focus areas of education, advocacy, and evidence development sort of work together and synergize in a way that uh, we believe helps to move the field forward. So uh, that's kind of a snapshot I can, I'm happy to uh, discuss further. Yeah, perfect. And let's maybe go through those three pillars. I think all of them are super important and super interesting for, for our audience. And maybe starting with that educational part, and I guess also like stakeholder part, right? If you look at healthcare, it's such a complex um, environment, right? You have patients, then you have physicians, then you have companies that develop drugs or medical devices. You obviously have payers and like multiple stakeholders, very complex uh, layers. Um, each of them, of course, have different incentives. So how difficult or how easy is it to bring those people together to advance the personalized medicine agenda? Yeah, you know, I think um, it's um, easy for many of these stakeholders to understand why personalized medicine is desirable. We have, for example, never met a patient who would prefer that their care be cookie cutter, one size fits all. If given the choice, most people will understand and recognize the value uh, or the at least the importance of um, personalized medicine I think where the where some of the challenges lie are in value assessment uh, how might we understand and quantify um, the value uh, of therapies uh, and I think that uh, among stakeholders this can be a challenge uh, aligning everybody on a single understanding which uh, you know it is uh, an ongoing conversation. 
Uh, also, challenges relate to reimbursement. Um, in some cases, there may be an understanding of what the value of a, a given intervention may be, but the upfront cost may be high, and there may be challenges to integrating that into health systems that were structured to absorb, uh, not structured, rather, to absorb upfront costs in this way. So, you know, I think that's another one. And then, you know, finally, another area that I think we think a lot about is um, in clinical adoption, where um, in many cases, when you're talking about personalized medicine, particularly if you're beyond genomics specifically, and you're thinking about how to integrate multiple uh, data points uh, and act on multiple data points to deliver personalized healthcare, uh, especially if you want to align it with circumstances and values of the patient, you have a lot of actors here. It's not just the provider, but also uh, information technology uh, institutions, IT companies uh, whose products are integrated into the work streams. Uh, and then patients themselves have to have a plug-in so that their experiences and voices are heard properly throughout the process of, of understanding how to deliver their care. So you know, as you point out, I think it's it's all um, very complex. But uh, you know, I think that the size of the coalition and the representativeness uh, uh, that is our membership uh, is a testament to um, uh, and a signal uh, about um, the shared understanding of what personalized medicine can do once it's leveraged. And you know, I think that um, many in healthcare are working toward that goal pretty. Um, pretty deliberately. Yeah, and maybe speaking about that broader presentation, I know that Personalized Medicine Coalition is also backed by uh, US Congress and Senate. So can you tell us a little bit more about importance of that collaboration and what type of agenda can be pushed through through the legislative uh, type of actions? Yeah, uh, sure. So um, in February of 2020, in part um, based upon the Personalized Medicine Coalition's advocacy on Capitol Hill, though there are many people uh, talking about personalized medicine with lawmakers, uh, a bipartisan and bicameral group of United States um, men and women in Congress launched a Congressional Personalized Medicine Caucus. Um, and this is co-chaired by Kirsten Sinema, who's uh, from Arizona, Tim Scott, a senator from South Carolina, Eric Swalwell, who is uh, representing California in the House of Representatives, and Tom Emmer, uh, who's from uh, Minnesota and represents that state uh, in the House of Representatives. And, you know, so those four co-chairs organized this and launched it in, in February of 2020. Since that time, the base of members has been growing, uh, which, uh, again, I think underlines the bipartisan spirit that would be behind improving health care for uh, American patients in this way through personalized medicine. And, and so really it, it performs, the caucus performs, um, number one, an essential educational function. Um, as you have acknowledged, even among people on, on Capitol Hill, uh, personalized medicine is still finding its way into the lexicon and finding its way into the ways that people are thinking about the future of healthcare. So one of the most powerful opportunities we have and have collaborated very closely with the caucus to do are to organize uh, congressional briefings on key topics in personalized medicine. And these will uh, are designed to help educate other members of Congress about why this is so important and what it can achieve both for patients uh, by improving their care, but also for health systems 
uh, as we uh, contend and, as I mentioned, continue to study how personalized medicine might help us be more efficient with our resources, for example, by facilitating earlier uh, interventions or targeting treatments to only those who will benefit. So, you know, again, the Congressional Personalized Medicine Caucus plays these educational functions very well. And uh, recently, it, it also has taken up, some of its members have taken up uh, some specific targeted legislation and, and initiatives that they think can help pave the way uh, for the field. So, you know, just this year, we've been encouraged by a few of those initiatives, including uh, uh, the Precision Medicine uh, Answers for Kids Today Act, which was only recently introduced uh, in Congress. So, you know, we consider it uh, a signal that uh, lawmakers are prepared to act on this based upon an understanding of its benefits. And um, finally, I'll just conclude by saying that it has been our experience that once once the benefits of personalized medicine are explained to people, um, most congressional lawmakers are receptive to the idea, as are patients. We've done research to this effect. And uh, again, it's something that I think um, in a, uh, it's something we can all sort of agree that might be a good idea. So there's a snapshot there of what we're doing with the Congressional Personalized Medicine Caucus. Sounds very, very important. And uh, yeah, it's great to see that, that there is, uh, has been such an amazing progress uh, there. And as you said, probably a lot of lawmakers, uh, a lot of people in general and population never heard about personalized medicine two, three, five years ago. And uh, just the fact that it it's making its way through to... To the politics, through the Congress, but also like, through the general masses, this this certainly helps uh, in advancing in advancing this forward. We are doing this show for you, and your feedback is very important for us. So, if you have any suggestions or comments, or would like to recommend a guest, please write us an email to team at pmedcast.com. You can also reach us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Just type in "personalized medicine podcast" and you will find us there. To catch our next episode, subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Please rate us there and leave a comment. This helps us make this show better and reach more people interested in personalized medicine. And now, let's get back to the interview. Perfect. Chris, one more thing that I want to discuss with you, and you alluded to it already, uh, with your third pillar of the strategy is the evidence uh, and evidence generation to support uh, the personalized medicine approaches. The question that I have here is essentially how um, difficult is it to not just generate that evidence, but then convey them to the broader spectrum of physicians throughout the country, general practitioners, just like kind of imagining the routine days of, of physicians kind of getting through the patients, getting through the days, probably not having that much time to read through all of the research articles that are being published at the supersonic rate. So, so maybe how Personalized Medicine Coalition helps, uh, helps there. Yeah, sure. Um, so you're right, first of all, that this uh, is a, a big challenge. We have done several studies on what the obstacles are when it comes to clinical integration of personalized medicine and physician education uh, undoubtedly rises to the top of the list. Um, busy physicians, you know, often have trouble, uh, you know, keeping tr up with the the latest in any field um, and in a fast moving field like personalized medicine, especially difficult. So, um, you know, I think that one of the um, the strategies that we have encountered and that we think is is promising in addition to the work that we're doing to simply 
generate and, and publish this evidence uh, to put it in front of um, uh, healthcare decision makers and providers is the role of information technology. If we, if we think about what personalized medicine might look like uh, optimally, the optimal scenario is one in which IT systems help um, physicians stay up to date in an automated way. And there's a lot of efforts ongoing to synthesize data and new research very quickly and integrate it into a health system's collective understanding of what could and should be going on. Again, a lot of this is made possible by the power of um, advanced computing techniques, which in the perfect world, and in some cases we have encountered, um, you know, institutions thinking about how to automate into their, um, you know, uh, electronic health record systems, for example, reminders of when a pharmacogenomic application may be uh, applicable. Uh, and one could imagine um, reminders across uh, a broad, you know, sort of swath, multifactorial um, uh, analyses that would remind and help walk physicians um, down the path of understanding how biomarkers may help uh, target their care. And, you know, it, it may be the case that this will free up some of their time to focus on those human interactions with patients that we know can mean so much. So, you know, I think the answer to your question is. Um, twofold. The first is that we, we see evidence generation for its own sake to be essential in, in understanding where and how personalized medicine can help patients in an evidence-based way. Uh, and then we publish that research, obviously, in peer-reviewed places and, and hope to raise its profile through our, our networks of clinicians. Uh, um, but secondly, you know, we do see and uh, encounter a lot of companies and, and individuals who see um, information technology playing an increasingly large role here in helping physicians keep up with the latest. And all of this, we hope, might be driving toward what some might call a learning healthcare system in which you have a feedback loop that is updated continuously and helps us uh, enter a, a world in which physicians don't have to rely only on their own knowledge, uh, but can sort of tap into society's collective understanding of what makes sense in various circumstances. So um, that's just a, a, an overview of a, you know what we see as a few emerging solutions there. Chris, I, I want to switch gears a little bit. I've talked a lot about the personalized medicine, uh, the organization, what Personalized Medicine Coalition is doing. Um, when I read your article instead, I was I was really amazed, and I recommend to everybody in our audience to to listen to it. And we'll put the link uh, into into the show notes uh, to this episode. You mentioned something very important that we often think about personalized medicine or precision medicine as something that is kind of on the forefront of science, probably involves cancer, maybe neurodegenerative diseases, but uh, not necessarily, but don't necessarily have this broader application. And uh, the point that you, you made in the article was around access, right, to, to the health scan, access to the personalized therapies. So um, where do you see like the biggest problems in terms of access today and what can be done to make sure that Personalized medicine approaches can be accessed by everybody, and particularly by underrepresented groups of people, underrepresented in clinical trials, for example. Yeah, uh, so the inspiration for that article actually came with it came from the early definitions of personalized medicine in the early literature. This concept was described as bringing the right treatment to the right patient at the right time. And, you know, as I've gone through my career in personalized medicine, the more I've reflected on this, the more I've concluded that that goal has to be broader than 
simply targeting something based upon, um, you know, biomarker strategies. Because if you're trying to intervene at the right time and understand which populations of patients are, are most at risk, I think um, the COVID-19 experience is one perfect example of how you have to be um, understanding the patient in a very holistic way um, with reference to not only biological, but also environmental and circumstantial factors that may put them at risk for something. So, you know, that was kind of the impetus of, of my thinking here. And, and you know, things that, I, you know, I think have come up as solutions to, to access challenges, at least from a technological standpoint, include um, telemedicine and decentralized clinical trials, where we are hopeful that in the future we may be able to um, give access uh, to populations of patients uh, who may not be getting their care at an academic medical center to uh, uh, those um, uh, leading-edge um, uh, researchers and clinicians who can be available in an audio-visual format. This could, for example, help increase uptake in clinical trials, especially among populations that are disadvantaged by not having access to the academic medical centers that uh, have traditionally hosted those trials. So, you know, we have been thinking about telemedicine and decentralized trials a lot in, um, you know, the last year or so as a, a potential opportunity to help us solve some of this disconnect about, about how to reach pop populations. Of course, the challenge here is that the broad-based infrastructure, broadband internet, for example, and other infrastructure that might be required to facilitate that access in an equitable manner is not equitably deployed across the United States and, and probably uh, around the world is likely to say. So, you know, so I think there's a lot of work to be done there. We also think a little uh, or quite a bit about um how to create a more representative uh, workforce in the healthcare space, um, and and we see opportunities there um, to to um, representation in the workforce, the healthcare workforce, which um, you know the thinking has been this may make um, the workforce more sensitive to the needs of populations whose needs are otherwise being underserved. So. You know, I think we think about it holistically, and a lot of it, like I said, has to do with this right patients, um, right treatment and intervention, and the right time. You know, and I think, uh, generally speaking, um, the healthcare system has a long way to go there, and we're still thinking through uh, how we might how we might do those things. And and I guess to round out, you know, a, a discussion here about especially health equity and thinking about. Um, how to embrace personalized medicine in this larger sense. We see increased representation in clinical trials among historically underrepresented groups as uh, something that we consider to be a scientific necessity. Because if you want to um, better target uh, treatments and intervention strategies, as we do to um, diverse patient populations, by definition, those diverse patient populations have to be represented in the research in order to guide an evidence-based approach there. So uh, we think that that is also, uh, a, you know, another example of an area where we can and should make a lot of progress. But, you know, you're absolutely right that, um, you know, the thrust of my work in the op-ed really has to do with making sure that we um, are doing everything we can to understand a patient's needs and um, bring healthcare and, and interventions to them instead of, you know, requiring uh, so much uh, uh, from them in order for them to just simply access the care that they need. Perfect. Yeah, it's a very hopeful message. And that's a nice transition into, into my next question. That's what we like to ask on this podcast. 
is your vision for the future? Uh, so um, what we typically ask is, what are the three major developments that you would like to see happening uh, in the field of personalized medicine, let's say over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so I mean, I think the first of them would be um, that, that very point. Um, I, I hope that the conception of what it means to personalize healthcare for a patient will in the future become broader. We'll start to understand that in order to serve diverse patient populations, the patient has to be at the center of what we're doing. And we have to understand um, a holistic lens uh, about what it means to deliver personalized medicine. And again, this return to the concept of, of right treatment, right patient at right time, I think should be fundamental to that if we want to be successful uh, equitably deploying our interventions uh, in the future. So that would be the first is the broader conception and notion of personalized medicine, especially beyond um, traditional, um, just genetically guided therapies in cancer and elsewhere. Um, so with that said, um, the other two developments that I think really strike me as being meaningful for patients are, um, I, you know, I hope that we will have a better understanding in five to 10 years of how multi-cancer early detection screening tests, these are biomarker-based blood tests, may be able to help us deliver on earlier detection of cancers. We know that by detecting cancers earlier, we have an opportunity in many cases to intervene with more success uh, and in many cases, um, um, in a less expensive way, because the cancer will, might be less developed. So I certainly hope that in the future, we'll have a, a better understanding of how those tests and the deployment of those tests may lead to uh, improved patient outcomes, which is an area of a lot of focus right now. Uh, the latest thinking is that, uh, that I've encountered anyway, is that the tests themselves are, seem to be able to detect the cancer, but the question is: when you put them in the hands of patients, um, is this going to, or uh, put them in the hands of physicians, is this going to uh, improve outcomes? So I hope we'll have a better understanding of that notion uh, in five to ten years, and then. You know, finally, um, I would say an area where, where PMC is very active and, and where we really think that we have an opportunity is in um, broadening reimbursement coverage for genomic sequencing for patients who uh, have uh, suspected uh, genetic rare diseases. Most of these patients are children, um, and we see tremendous opportunity here uh, as sort of an intuitive use uh, of personalized medicine to screen um, a broad-based, uh, take a broad-based look at uh, a sick uh, child's genome to understand if there are genetic factors influencing uh, that disease. And this is something that we've been thinking about and studying uh, for quite some time and seeing a lot of research coming out. And, and it would appear that, you know, there may be some opportunities there. And I certainly hope that in the future, as I said, with multi-cancer early detection screening, we'll have a better sense of where and when that makes sense. And um, just to bring things full circle, um, there is a bill, uh, the, one of the first um, uh, introduced by members of the Congressional Personalized Medicine Caucus, which was introduced by one of the co-chairs, Eric Swalwell, along with his Republican uh, co-chair, Tom Emmer, and uh, Scott Peters uh, in California. It's called the Precision Medicine Answers for Kids Today Act. And the idea here is to understand where and when broader coverage of genomic screening, um, uh, genomic sequencing for rather for 
uh, patients with suspected rare diseases might make sense. You know, we see this as an important building block that can help us move the needle here. And, um, you know, like I said, in, in five to 10 years, I, I really hope we'll have a better understanding of uh, when that might make sense. Um, and the, in a, in the uh, optimistic view of the future is kids will be getting that kind of screening and we'll be able to preempt and, and intervene before diseases become very advanced and sadly ultimately fatal for some of these kids. So that's a big part of the future that we're trying to build at PMC and certainly something that I think uh, quite a bit about. Great. Yeah, it sounds like a very promising future and uh, let's hope that all of this will happen and, and we need uh, more of that research. We need more of those efforts. And uh, speaking about the next generation of people who would make this possible, what type of advice would you like to give to young professionals, perhaps physicians, perhaps scientists, perhaps journalists like yourself, who are passionate about personalized medicine and would like to start their career in this space? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think that um, the advice I'd give is try to reverse reverse engineer everything that you do from the lens of the patient. And I know that that sounds like something that is sort of uh, intuitive, like we all should be doing that. I don't think anyone dis would disagree that, that we shouldn't. But I do think that it's there's a lot of information and there's a lot of day-to-day -day priorities and a lot of things that come up and a lot of arguments that get made about why we should or shouldn't do something. And you know, I think the most rewarding aspects of my career and, and also the most productive are when I'm really thinking about what patients need and specifically asking myself, if I were a patient, how would I react to this? And in many cases, PMC has worked directly with patients to get those perspectives. Um, we survey them and stay plugged into them so that we can help kind of, like I said, reverse engineer the patient experience and then come back to our network of professionals and organize the professionals in such a way that we know we're going to be aligned with the patient. Um, needs uh, uh, and preferences and values. So, you know, I, I think that um, just having a, a, a laser focus on that and always waking up in the morning, asking yourself that question about if you were a patient in this space, what is it that you would care about? Uh, you know, I think it goes a long way. It helps to drive you toward the most impactful and meaningful measures and steps that you can take in your day-to-day -day, uh, uh, to, to make a difference. So, you know, that's something that I um, think a lot about and, and that I would certainly recommend, you know, somebody interested in this space kind of uh, make sure that they keep in mind as they go uh, out through their career. Great. Yeah, it's very very important and as you said probably obvious advice at the first place in at the first side but we tend to forget about this uh, quite often in, in our daily routine right yes that's right perfect great chris thanks so much for for an amazing interview i'm sure there'll be a lot of people who would like to reach out to you after this so if you could just let our audience know where they can find you online for the follow-ups Yeah, so you can certainly find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and also, if you'd like to uh, follow uh, Personalized Medicine Coalition, it's at PermED Coalition uh, on Twitter. And we also have a LinkedIn presence. Uh, the coalition itself has a LinkedIn presence as well. So, you know, I, I, we would welcome that. Uh, and I welcome uh, connections on, on LinkedIn or, or inquiries on there. Great. Chris, thanks a lot for, for this conversation. All the best to you, all the best to the Personalized Medicine Coalition, and thanks a lot for all of the great things that you are doing. And uh, we'll definitely stay in touch uh, and wish you good luck. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you so much for being with us today on the Personalized Medicine Podcast. If you like this show and know someone who would enjoy it too, please share this podcast with them. And don't miss the next episode yourself. Subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app. Please rate us there and leave a comment. That helps us to grow and deliver best experience to you. To access the show notes for this episode, visit our website, pmedcast.com. It's p-m-e-d-c-a-s-t dot Our show notes include guest bios, links to their most notable work and recommendations for additional reads on the topic of the episode. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest, write us an email to team at pmedcast.com or reach out on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you very much, have a great day, and until next time.